Do the promises that God made to the Old Testament nation of Israel still apply to Jewish people today? Has God somehow given to the church the promises he had previously made to the Jewish nation? Why are events in Israel significant to Christians and the church? We're going to tackle these questions and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, if we haven't met, and our host is somebody you must meet. He is Dr. Charlie Dyer, Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler, and a guy who loves studying the Middle East. Good to connect again, Charlie. John, it's always good being with you, and thank you. Well, I tell you what, with Israel's next election now just over a week away, I'm wondering how serious are the re-election challenges that are facing Prime Minister Netanyahu? Could Israel have a new prime minister after this election? What do you think? Uh, Well, the challenges in this election are different than those Netanyahu has faced before, and frankly, John, they are daunting. The two biggest challenges are the rise of additional parties on the same side of the political spectrum and the polarizing impact of the ultra-Orthodox parties on other voters. Uh, By the way, John, there are a total of 39 parties running in this election. No shortage of opportunities. Netanyahu's party now, though, has two rivals occupying almost the same band on the political spectrum. Uh, Naftali Bennett's Yamina party and Gideon Sa'ar's New Hope party. Uh, These two parties together are looking to garner somewhere between 20 and 24 seats in the Knesset. Netanyahu's party is expected to end up with about 29 seats. That would make it the largest party. But these three parties together, along with uh, 13 to 15 seats that the religious parties are expected to receive, would give the conservatives enough seats to form a government. But Gideon Sa'ar is running on a platform that says he will not sit in any government led by Netanyahu. And in the last election, Bennett and the Yamina party chose to sit with the opposition rather than joining Netanyahu's coalition. So without the support of these two parties, the way forward for Netanyahu is far more difficult. And the ultra-Orthodox parties are making it even harder for him to attract others. The ultra-Orthodox refusal to follow COVID guidelines and the subsequent rise in the rate of infections put a great strain on Israel's health care system. Many blame the ultra-Orthodox for the more recent lockdowns endured by the rest of the country, and they're upset with Netanyahu for not pushing harder to bring them into compliance. They feel that he put his support for the coalition above national interests. But even with all that, I still wouldn't count out Netanyahu. As we've seen in the past, he is the political chess master, and every potential rival also faces problems. Yair Lapid and the Yeshatid party is expected to receive the second largest number of seats in the Knesset. But to form a coalition, he'll need to bring together a number of parties with very diverse platforms and goals. You know, it's just hard to imagine that the right-wing New Hope and Yamina parties would find much common ground with the left-wing Labor and Meretz parties, or that nationalist Avigdor Lieberman and his Yisrael Batenu party would join forces with the Arab Joint List. For Netanyahu to be defeated, these other parties will need to join forces, but to do so will require most of them to go back on historic campaign promises. And in Israel, voters tend to punish party leaders who go back on their promises. So the key to this election seems to be Naftali Bennett. It almost appears as if Bennett is hoping for an indecisive election, with neither Netanyahu nor Lapid being able to form a working coalition. 
He might then offer himself as an alternative choice, hoping to garner the 20 seats from Lapid, the 12 from New Hope, 7 from Lieberman, 5 from Gantz, 5 or more from other parties or defectors from Likud who are willing to join with possibly one of the religious parties. But at least right now, that even seems like a remote option. But there is one thing we do know. The next election isn't just about the vote on March 23rd. It's about a clash of personalities with some pretty big egos, and it's about the political chess match that will follow the election as each party tries to search for a winning coalition. On this opening segment of our one-hour flyover of the Middle East, we take a look at current events, and uh, we're having a great time as we're unfolding some of these very complex issues. Well, the relationship between Iran, Turkey, Russia, and Syria is also complex, fluctuating between being allies and adversaries. Help us understand the different forces that are pulling these countries together and pushing them apart. Yeah, you know, next to the political situation in Israel, this is about the most complex relationship in the Middle East. Now, I'll start with Russia. They're trying to make themselves the dominant player in the region. Uh, They've been working to build or strengthen alliances with each of those other countries. In fact, they're using their Sputnik V COVID vaccine as a tool of influence in the region. Russia and Syria, they're historic allies. They have a relationship that goes back over 50 years. It's Russia's military might that kept the Assad regime in power following the Arab Spring. In theory, Russia and Iran also share common interests in Syria, though in reality, each is trying to be Syria's main ally. Russia supplies the military muscle to Syria in return for military bases and access to a warm water port. Iran shares a common religious connection and sees Syria as a vital part of its arc of Shiite influence that stretches from Iran through Iraq and Syria into Lebanon. Iran also has greater ambitions in the area. They would like to reestablish a modern version of the Persian Empire to recapture the grandeur that they say was once theirs. And when it comes to Turkey, they have a similar vision. They want to reestablish a modern version of the Ottoman Empire. They also want to crush the Kurdish ambitions for setting up an independent country of Kurdistan. Now, to accomplish that, they've sent their own troops, Turkish troops, into northern Syria and Iraq. Short-term interests, from pushing the U.S. out of the region to eliminating the common threats like ISIS and the Kurds to diminishing the power of Israel, those things have brought about much of the cooperation between all these countries. But their long-term interests, especially their own nationalistic interests, continue to resurface. And it's these interests that help explain some of the more recent events we're seeing. For example, a week ago, there was a ballistic missile attack on oil facilities in northern Syria. Hmm. No one claimed credit for that attack, but it's likely that it was Russia and Syria who were behind it with the goal of denying Turkish-backed Syrian groups the use of those oil facilities. About the same time Iran condemned Turkey's presence in Syria and Iraq, the remarks were made the same day Turkish President Erdogan and his Iranian counterpart spoke to each other by phone. Meanwhile, Turkey publicized the arrest of alleged Iranian agents in their country. So each country has its own ambitions and goals, and they might cooperate with the others to achieve limited aims, but... They really are rivals. Wow, and very complex. Tensions appear to be rising between Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinians over access to and control of the Temple Mount. I thought this had kind of simmered down, Charlie. What's causing this conflict between them? Well, the presenting cause is is a protest note from Jordan demanding that Israel stop hindering restoration work at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. The Jordan Foreign Ministry, along with the Palestinian Authority, 
also released a statement condemning a supposed incursion, they said, by 230 Jewish extremists into the area. In fact, they called it a raid, and they said it was a flagrant violation of existing legal and historical status and international law. And they've said Israel's continuing to dig at Al Barak Square and trying to destroy, hide, or obliterate the Islamic identity of the city. Now, here's the rest of the story. There wasn't a raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Visits on the Temple Mount are allowed for Christians and Jewish visitors. They're carefully regulated by the police. Jewish visits are actually carried out with police supervision, and they don't include entry into the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome of the Rock. The excavations Israel's conducting are happening outside the Temple Mount area. Israel hasn't destroyed any Islamic discoveries, but they have uncovered a wealth of historical material clearly linking Jerusalem with its Jewish heritage. And as for Israel interfering with Islamic construction on the Temple Mount, well, part of Israel's concern goes back to when Islamic officials decided to dig an underground mosque on the southeast corner of the area. They hauled out dirt that contained priceless artifacts and nearly caused the outer wall of the complex to collapse. So why the fuss right now? Partly it's in response to the growing relationship between Israel and the Gulf states. Jordan and the Palestinian Authority were left out in the cold as these relationships continued to warm. And partly it's in response to our new president. They're hoping to get the White House to pressure Israel to make additional concessions. So all that to say, when you read these stories in the press, just realize there's more to the story than what's mm. appearing in print. Well, an ancient Egyptian manual reveals new details about mummification. What's the story behind the discovery of the manual and what specific details can we learn from it, Charlie? Yeah, well, it's interesting. This papyrus was actually found in the last century, but it was divided among private collectors. Half ended up in the Louvre in Paris, the other half in Copenhagen. An Egyptologist working on her PhD uh, dissertation was able to study both parts, and she's put them together, dated the work around 1450 BC, about the time of the Exodus. Uh, the entire manuscript is a short manual or medical text on embalming. Uh, what I found fascinating is that the embalming process took 70 days. The time was divided into a time for drying and the actual embalming. Forty days are mentioned in uh, the book of Genesis about the embalming of Jacob. It's just one more reminder that the events in the Bible match the historical period. And uh, that's a look at current events in the Middle East with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Coming up, a conversation about Israel and the church. You don't want to miss this because it has everything to do with you and me today on The Land and the Book. Israel and the church. Some people wouldn't even put those two words together in the same sentence. But that would be a mistake, according to the Bible. And why is that? Well, that's our conversation coming up next on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome back. I'm John Geiger. Before we reestablish connections between the church and Israel, what do you say we think about establishing better connections with our Jewish co-workers and friends and neighbors? Here's what I mean. Opportunities to share Yeshua with your Jewish friends come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Beth Tavlin's got a great story. She serves on staff at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Beth? One day I was talking on the phone with someone from technical support about my computer, and when he saw the name of our congregation, he started speaking to me in Hebrew. <laughs> well, I don't speak Hebrew. But I did take the opportunity to explain to him that we are a congregation of Jewish people who believe in Jesus. And he had not 
really explored that very much. And so we talked about it a little bit more. And because he was on the phone, I thought, well, I need to give him some resources. So I directed him to the website InSearchOfShalom.com, which is a website that has a lot of Jewish believers' testimonies Mm. on video. And so you can direct Jewish people there, and they can go in the privacy of their own home and watch these videos of people who have powerful testimonies, and they're all Jewish believers. InSearchOfShalom.com. Yes. Great resource for somebody that's uh, maybe just with tech support on the phone. Thoughts there from Beth Tavlin, who's with Olive Tree Congregation, here on The Land and the Book. Pastor Mike Gole is the Director of Operations of Behold Israel. Prior to this leadership role, Mike was lead pastor of Friendship Church in Minnesota for 17 years. Additionally, he serves as a chaplain in the United States Air Force Reserve. Pastor Mike lived and worked in Israel for more than eight years and has led a number of ministry teams there. He's also proficient in Hebrew, has extensive experience with Jewish and Israeli culture. Additionally, Pastor Mike has a deep passion and knowledge for Bible teaching and Israel's role in prophecy which is why he frequently will be found teaching in churches and at conferences and on Israel tours. He and his wife, Sharon, have three kids. They reside in Minnesota. Hey, thanks for connecting with us today on The Land and the Book, Mike. John, it is an honor to be with you here today, and this is, by the way, my favorite subject. All right. Well, we're glad to connect with you on a favorite subject. First, a quick overview of Behold Israel, the ministry. What's at the heart here of what you guys do, and how do you accomplish your goals? The heart is actually in the title. We want people to behold Israel, to behold the apple of God's eye, the blossoming fig tree, according to prophecy, and as Gentiles being grafted into the original olive tree. And when people come to Israel and they see the beauty of Israel and the prophetic blossoming of this country, uh, it, it gives them a sense of depth in their faith. And we would love to bring Israel to them as well through our social online media, our teachings around the world, uh, talking about prophecy, talking about Israel being the epicenter of God's ultimate plan. So that's really a snapshot of Behold Israel. Okay, what's the biggest life lesson you took away personally as you lived in Israel for those eight years? I'm struck by that little part of your your bio. John, uh, you might be surprised to hear this, but I learned a ton about the present relationships between the different people groups. And if I may be so blunt as to say, I learned that uh, the conflict there and the roots of the conflict uh, were really uh, a lot of a lot of opinions, and I, I was able to uh, make some observations about what the general Palestinian leadership wants and what the general Israeli public wants. Hmm. And I came into this thinking that peace plans would work. I came into this thinking that the Palestinians had good intentions. But what I learned, unfortunately, John, and this is my perspective, so keep that in mind, is that generally the Israelis wanted peace, but the Palestinians wanted victory. And victory means that they, they want the Jews out and they want their their so-called land. They believe it's theirs back. That's a big, big thing. But secondly, John, the fulfillment of prophecy of this Jewish state being reborn, um, which in many ways uh, is triggering a lot of the, uh, the anger of the Palestinians. So how is living in Israel different than merely visiting Israel? 
Well, first of all, John, you've got to learn the uh, the language if you're going to function. And, uh, you know, then you're paying taxes and you're part of the system and you're mm-hmm. waiting in lines and, and especially in traffic and you're fighting through life just like you would anywhere else. But uh, you learn who the people are, where they come from, John. Jews come from all over the world. You meet Holocaust survivors. You meet Jews from all over the Middle East and Europe, and they speak different languages. Honestly, John, I felt like I was uh, an idiot surrounded by geniuses, and uh, it's a tough culture. You've got to be tough. You've got to be proactive. You've got to be persevering if you're going to survive there. Yeah. Very different from being a tourist. Pastor Mike Gole lived and worked in Israel for more than eight years, has led numerous ministry teams, including Jesus Film Projects in the Galilee region. He's also proficient in Hebrew and has extensive experience with Jewish culture, as we're uh, encountering right now in this conversation. Do you agree, Mike, or disagree with my premise that uh, many Christians would never put Israel and the church in the same sentence? And if so, why is that? I absolutely agree with you, 110%, John. And the reason why is because a lot of people don't know what to do with Israel. Is there a covenant that's separate? If so, why? What does it mean for Israel's future? Uh, A lot of Christians are New Testament-centric, if that makes sense. They don't know a whole lot about the Old Testament. I'm speaking in generalities, and so what you get is a Christian church that becomes very focused on itself and uh, has no real place for Israel, and maybe they're not against it, but they just don't have a framework. Uh, They've never been taught. They have not read the Old Testament necessarily. And so that's that's what—I agree with you, John. Okay, you have touched on the uh, connection with the Old Testament, and that's absolutely huge. But so many Christians today, as you have observed, miss that connection because they're either ignorant of or uncomfortable with the Old Testament. But without the Old Testament, there is no Israel. So how do you account for the large disconnect from the Old Testament in much of the body of Christ today? Well, John, I think it's work to read the Old Testament. I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of content there. There's a lot of literary genres. And let's face it, it's over the span of 1,000 years, all of these books in writing, whereas the New Testament's only over the span of less than 100 years. I mean, basically, uh, just in the first century there. So the kind of Hebrew differs, the genres differ, there's a different cultural mindset there. And uh, let's face it, a lot of Christians just want to open up the Gospels or the Epistles. They're relevant, they're direct, and uh, they know they're getting the New Covenant there, and they don't have to look through all of the puzzles that uh, some of the wording of the prophets and some of the Psalms, it it just takes a little bit more work, John. That's my explanation based on the years of experience with people. Give an example or two of how Israel illuminates our understanding of God's covenant love with the Church. Well, this is key. In Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul himself says that even his salvation, he's willing to take and put it on the altar if it meant that his own people could come to faith. Now, we know that's not possible, but that shows you his heart. And then he goes through chapter 9 through 11 of Romans, which, by the way, is a great thing for your audience just to sit and read in one sitting. He really talks about Israel's unique role and that God has not finished with them and that the covenants still stand, John. And not only that, but there's going to be a day when they will be saved, mm. as it's stated in the Old Testament so, so clearly. 
And so Romans 9 through 11 is a powerful, powerful New Testament synopsis of God's unique plan for Israel. And I think Christians should be aware they're grafted into the original olive tree. It doesn't say that God uprooted the original olive tree. It says that we're grafted into it. And then the non-believing branches of the olive tree were cut off. Pastor Mike Gole is Director of Operations for Behold Israel. Previously, he served as lead pastor of Friendship Church in Minnesota for more than 17 years. Uh, seems to me one huge point of disconnect today is the emergence of replacement theology, a dangerous belief that we should probably visit for a moment. For somebody new, what is replacement theology, Mike, and how could it possibly pose any danger to anybody? John, replacement theology says that the church replaces Israel in everything. In other words, Israel failed. They didn't fulfill their covenant. And God said, you know, I'm going to move to the church, and I'm going to take all of those prophecies that pertain to Israel that are unfulfilled, and I'm just going to apply them to the church allegorically. The danger, John, is what that does is creates, ultimately, in the worst case, an anti-Semitism, at the very least, a misunderstanding, and it skews all of the timeline of God's plans for the future. Let me give you an example. In Jerusalem, there's called the Yad Vashem Museum, the first exhibit. It's a Holocaust museum, John. When you walk in, it doesn't speak about replacement theology, but the way the Nazis were able to push and sell the church in uh, Europe was to get them to believe that the church and the people of Europe are the new people. They got the church to believe that Israel is finished in God's covenant, they failed, and now the church replaces them. And that is the worst danger in all this. Now, if you look at the end times, too, if the fig tree coming to life is symbolic of the state of Israel coming to life, and if, in fact, we as Gentiles are grafted into the original olive tree, then you know that not only our salvation, but also the ultimate culmination of eschatology has Israel at the epicenter. There's some serious things at stake there, John. Yeah, for sure. What are some other forces that have pushed many evangelicals off the rails when it comes to our understanding of the relationship between Israel and the church? Well, certainly in relationship to Israel, if you believe that Israel is the epicenter and you believe that they are a fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy of chapter 36 and 37 coming back to life, the fig tree also that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24, it automatically triggers a political discussion, John. What does that mean? Does that mean that the people of that land that were there, does that mean that uh, they're suddenly just irrelevant? Is there a paradigm for the Palestinians? A lot of believers struggle with that. How do you embrace prophecy and Israel and at the same time maintain a Christ-like love for the Palestinians, which are human beings? And uh, hopefully you see that dilemma, and there is an easy way to solve it, but a lot of people aren't willing to get into that dilemma. So sometimes it's just easier to say the church replaces Israel. Well, how can we make a course correction, Mike? What needs to happen, and, and uh, who does the uh, course correcting? Well, I think the course correcting is your listener that uh, it sparks interest in this subject, looks into the Bible, and I would direct them immediately, like I said, to Romans 9 through 11, read it through in one sitting. And John, I don't want to sound trite or uh, corny by saying this, but uh, Amir, my brother-in-law, wrote a book, and it's called Israel in the Church. And in that book, he unpacks 
everything we're talking about and so, so much more. Uh, until then, because it's not been released yet, it's still pre-order. Until then, I'd encourage people to go to our channel and watch some of our videos pertaining to Israel and the promises of Israel, because knowing about what God is doing in that country is key to understanding the end times, John. Mm. All right, you touched on the website, and you state there that one of your primary goals is, quote, to provide worldwide real-time access to reliable sources of news and information about Israel within the powerful context of Bible history and prophecy. Uh, That statement suggests there are unreliable sources of news and information about Israel. What role does that play, if any, in this discussion of Israel and the Church? Right. The unreliable sources is really one of the trigger points that made uh, Amir start Behold Israel many, many years ago because of all of the misinformation and misframing of what's going on. And so he's there locally, and we have sources locally that give us accurate information. And we want people, especially the church, to understand what God is doing in the region and that there is prophecy being fulfilled. And the church has a responsibility to put their arms around it and embrace the plan of God. Having a sense of urgency to share their faith and show what God is doing in Israel to prove, not prove, but to give even further evidence that the Bible is true and trustworthy in all things, especially in timelines for the future, John. All right, you got uh, 30 seconds to think this one through. One more, maybe two more, simple things that a listener could do right now to help restore a biblical sense of connection between Israel and the church. What would that be? I would advise every believer to start reading Messianic prophecy. All you do is you go onto Google and you say Messianic prophecy or prophecies concerning Israel and start your study and allow the Spirit of God to guide you in materials. I know Moody Press has released a lot of material on Israel and prophecy. We want to get the church reading about biblical prophecy and take our eyes off of the United States, North America, and get our eyes on Israel, which is the epicenter. And really, when you do that, John, and you see that fig tree is the key to understanding the events, the lights go on, the excitement goes on, and it's almost like a nitrous oxide turbocharger for the faith of the Christian believer. I love it. And that's where we'll land this plane. Thank you, uh, Mike, for going along for the journey. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. Charlie Dyer's back with a look at questions. And boy, maybe yours is one of them. You don't want to miss it next on The Land and the Book. The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're about to turn a corner and go down an avenue called Questions. Yours. Yeah. We'll start with Alan's. He says, thank you for The Land and the Book. We listen on the internet. Good to know that. And he says, these uh, past few weeks, I've been wondering about the different peace treaties that Israel has been making with other nations. What, if any, is the prophetic significance of these treaties? Yeah, I don't see any direct prophetic significance for these treaties. Uh, In Daniel 9.27, we're told about a covenant made between the Antichrist and the many that's specifically connected to a seven-year time frame. That's the uh, beginning of that final seven-year period. Well, that doesn't seem to be connected with these treaties that have been made. I do see a potential connection with these treaties in the invasion of Gog from the land of Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. In that passage, Ezekiel says Israel will be at peace And he lists countries that are going to attack Israel. Uh, The attacking countries don't include Egypt or Jordan or any of the countries in the Arabian Peninsula. So 
Uh, these peace agreements that are now being made do seem to help align the countries that will attack versus those not involved in the attack. In that sense, I think the treaties might be helping set the stage, create the time of peace. And it's very significant that uh, Iran, Turkey, and Russia are not part of these uh, peace treaties because they're the ones mentioned in Ezekiel that are going to be doing the attack. Steve says, I have a question regarding Luke 24, verses 25 through 27 and verses 44 through 46. Jesus says, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures regarding himself. This is obviously his post-resurrection appearance along the road. Steve wants to know, is there a verse that specifically mentions Christ's suffering on the cross in the law of Moses? Yeah, and the answer is no. And here's what I would say, though. When Jesus said, everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he wasn't saying that each part of that prediction, that is, his suffering and his death and his resurrection, had to be included in each individual section of the scriptures. What he was saying is that as one goes through the scriptures, all these prophetic aspects were revealed. So passages like uh, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 which focus directly on the atoning suffering of the coming servant Messiah, are vividly pictured there. But the fact that such suffering isn't specifically mentioned in the Pentateuch isn't a problem, since he wasn't saying that each aspect needed to be found in each section. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, looking at your questions, and they're welcome at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. From Bernard, this question. When Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel lead the captives back to Israel, did they lead them back from Babylon or Persia? Also, when Nehemiah was the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, was he in Persia or Babylon? Also, did the book of Esther take place in Persia? And if Persia is the correct answer to any of my questions, when and how did they get there? Yeah, and the answer to all of the above is yes. That is, some of the captives who came back under Zerubbabel came from Babylon. Ezra returned to Jerusalem, but it was from Babylon. Uh, he didn't come back actually till about 60 years after the time of Zerubbabel. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem 12 years after Ezra. In fact, Nehemiah of those three, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah is the only one who came from Persia. Uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra brought along a group of exiles with them from Babylon, but Nehemiah traveled just with a small group of Persian soldiers. Esther, the fourth one you mentioned, also lived in Persia. In fact, it says she was in the city of Susa, located about 225 miles southeast of Babylon. How did the Jewish people get into Persia? Uh, we're not told. Uh, evidently, as they went into Babylon, and we know they scattered around the, around the known world, uh, some traveled into Persia, and certainly when the Persians took over from the Babylonians, uh, some of the Jews would have continued traveling into that area. But the route of travel from Susa to Jerusalem would have gone from Susa to Babylon and then along the Fertile Crescent north uh, and then uh, ultimately to Damascus and then to Jerusalem. Here's a question from Nancy. She says, in our ladies' Bible study, we're going through 1 Corinthians. In chapter 6, Paul says, believers will participate in the judgment of the unbelieving world and angels. What angels will be judged? And what is the time frame for this judgment? One lady wanted to know if they're the fallen angels or just, quote, naughty ones. What do you say? Yeah, well, I'll start with the second part. Uh, there's only two groups of angels, those who stayed true to God and those who chose to disobey and fell. Uh, there's no naughty ones. Uh, but in these passages, I, I wish we did have more information. Here's what I think we can say, though. 
in that passage, Paul is focusing on the role of saints in judging. And he's saying, look, don't take people to court. You ought to be able to settle disputes within the church. And he argues from the greater to the lesser. You know, if someday we're going to judge the world and angels, shouldn't we be able to exercise discernment and judgment in lesser matters today? But second, uh, then the judgment of the world suggests that we're going to have a role in ruling and judging the world with Jesus, probably uh, ruling the world during the future millennial kingdom. In uh, Jesus' promise to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.21, he said, believers who overcome will have the right to sit with Jesus on his throne as he sat down with the Father. So it sounds like part of our role in the future kingdom will be serving those positions of authority, ruling and judging. But what about the angels? Well, the judgment of angels almost certainly refers to fallen angels. Now, right now, we don't know what these angels are doing, but in the future, we'll evidently be shown what they've done. And will be responsible for passing judgment on their actions. Now, we know from Daniel 10 that these angels exercise influence over the affairs of nations. Uh, In 2 Peter 2 and in Jude 6, we know some angels are already confined, awaiting a time of future judgment. So perhaps we're going to be part of the group who pass judgment on these fallen angels for the actions they committed throughout history. Uh, It might be, for lack of a better term, the heavenly equivalent of the Nuremberg trials at the end of World War II. Only in this case, there'll be eternal consequences for those being tried. Now, we're not told anything else about it. And what it does show is we're going to have positions of awesome responsibility in the future. Mm. But this also reminds me, John, that there's a lot about the future we don't yet know. But someday, God's going to make it clear. A kind listener says the land and the book is a superb program. It's a must hear on our agenda. And every segment is the best. Thank you. Well, your kind words are greatly appreciated. And here's the question. After Jesus was nailed to the cross, four soldiers divided his clothing. Apparently, there were five pieces, since the seamless undercoat slash shirt slash tunic is left over and gambled for. What are those five pieces, Charlie? Yeah, well, John 19 does tell us the soldiers divided his garments into four shares, one for each of them, but none of the gospel writers tells us specifically what clothing Jesus had been wearing at the time of his arrest. Uh, We do know the seamless undergarment is the part that wasn't divided. That suggests that some of the other items of clothing, though, might have been able to be torn apart. Uh, For that reason, I just don't know we can say with certainty, apart from we know he had sandals and uh, he had the one-piece undergarment, uh, but we don't know with certainty what those other pieces were or how they were divided or, or how the soldiers went about it. Here's a question from Renee. For some time, I've been wondering what method might have been used to unfasten the dead body of Jesus from the cross. I take a a pair of pliers or a claw hammer to pull a nail out of a board. What would have been used to extract the huge nails driven deep into a solid wood beam from the Savior's hands and feet? I'm assuming the feet were freed first, then the cross beam, with the body still attached by the hands, taken down, laid on the ground. It's quite gruesome to think about it, but it happened. It is gruesome, and it did happen. Uh, It's possible the Romans did have an ancient version of what we would consider pliers. Uh, We don't know that for certain, but we do know they were quite clever mechanically, so that wouldn't surprise me. What we do know is that they would first unfasten the nails from the cross and then either yank, pull, or, or hammer those nails out of the body. One gruesome archaeological discovery in Jerusalem was that of a body in an ossuary that had evidently been crucified. The nail through the ankle bone had bent. And it couldn't be removed. So the body was buried with the nail still embedded in the ankle. Hmm. A year later, when the bones were collected and placed in the ossuary, the bone box, 
Well, the nail was still in place. So uh, the Romans did whatever they could, but again, it was a rather crude uh, time, and they certainly didn't care much about the body as they were pulling those nails out. One last question from Lena. She says, is following the Sabbath sundown to sundown on Saturday a ceremonial law specifically instructed to the Jews or a moral law from the commandments on which we should follow all throughout history? Yeah, I see uh, more ceremonial laws for the Jews, and here's why. First, the Sabbath isn't required for Christians today. It's uh, never uh, repeated in the New Testament. And in Acts 15, when the uh, Jewish leaders told the Gentile Christians what they were to do, they didn't include the Sabbath as one of the requirements. Uh, We also know in Colossians 2, uh, verses 16 and 17, that uh, Paul specifically said the Sabbath day was one of the things that was a mere shadow of what was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let me end with one other passage, though, Romans 14. It says, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. So uh, it's not wrong to celebrate Sabbath, but it's not required for today either. And that's a look at questions that have come into our email collection. Yours welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is next. Stick around. Thank you very much for staying with us here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger asking, what's your definition of quiet, totally unplugged? Well, there's peaceful, there's serene, and then there's the Judean wilderness, a whole different dimension to quiet, removed, remote. We'll get to that in an interesting perspective from Charlie's devotional up next here on The Land of the Book. But first, we're going to pause, take in this perspective from somebody else who's traveled to Israel and shares this with you and me. My husband had the opportunity to go to Israel as a seminary student, and he would always come home from several trips and just repeat how his life was changed and that he couldn't wait until the day I'd be able to go to Israel with him. And in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. But I really wasn't totally convinced that a trip to Israel was going to be that life-changing. Well, the time finally came in 2003, we were able to travel to Israel with some close friends. And on about day three, I turned and looked at my husband and said, when are we coming to Israel again? Um, The trip to Israel has changed my life. It has changed the way I read God's word. When I read God's word now, If I don't know where a place is on the map of Israel, I have to find it. I check to see how close to the Dead Sea it is. Is it close to the Mediterranean? Is it in the north? Is it in the south? Is this an area where Jesus would have been performing miracles? All of those things came to life for me because I was in the land. We open God's word at each step. And traveling with Dr. Dyer gave that opportunity for us to not only walk on the land, but to read the verses from God's Word and find out where God's people, where God's Son ministered in this very special place. Always great to hear those Holy Land experiences from folks who've been to Israel and share their thoughts with us. Charlie, you and I have talked many times about your very first visit to Israel There's a moment, I think, though, that sticks out more than any other in that very first trip. 
With that, I'll turn things over to you for today's devotional. On my very first trip to Israel, we hiked down the Wadi Kilt in the Judean wilderness. Most have never heard of it, but for me, the place is unforgettable. The hike lasted about eight hours and was divided into three sections. The first third, we walked down the valley floor, skirting huge boulders pushed into place by flash floods in the past. This part of the hike ended at a pool of chest-deep water flowing right out of the rock in an otherwise barren desert. It reminded me of the words of Isaiah 32, where God compared the Messiah's arrival to streams of water in a dry country. During the second part of the hike, we walked along a modern aqueduct that was carrying the water from the spring down to Jericho. Looking across the canyon, we could see the remains of an aqueduct built by Herod the Great that had once carried water from the same spring. The second leg of the hike ended at a monastery built into the side of the valley wall. The setting for that monastery is simply spectacular. The final third of our walk followed a narrow path that snaked along the edge of the canyon. This was not a hike for those with a fear of heights because the cliff next to the path dropped away hundreds of feet to the valley floor below. This final leg of our journey ended at the ruins of Herod the Great's palace in Jericho. That was my first opportunity to see a wadi up close and personal. But you might be wondering to yourself, what's a wadi? Let's face it, it's not a word we use too often. A wadi is a seasonally dry riverbed. That is, it's a canyon that can fill with water during the rainy season, but that turns dry for the rest of the year. Several years later, I visited Israel during an unusually rainy winter. We didn't walk the wadi on that trip, but we did visit Herod's palace at Jericho. A steady stream of water was flowing down the canyon. Those visiting for the first time might have thought it was a normal stream or river that flowed year-round, but I knew better. A few months later, that stream bed would again be bone dry. And that's probably why wadis have become metaphors for something undependable. In the winter, when rain fills the cisterns and water is plentiful, a wadi can give the appearance of an ever-flowing stream. But if you pass that way again in the hot summer months, hoping to fill your water jugs at that so-called stream, forget it. When Job was under satanic attack, he searched for answers as to why he was suffering, and his search led him to his three friends. Unfortunately, they were about as helpful as a dry wadi in the middle of a blistering heat wave. In utter exasperation, Job finally shouted to them, My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish, which are turbid because of ice and into which the snow melts, and when they become waterless, they're silent. When it's hot, they vanish from their place. Ouch. So tell me how you really feel, Job. A wadi is an undependable stream that offers great promise when times are good, but that vanishes at the very time it's needed most. During Job's time of prosperity and success, his friends always seemed to be around for the party. But when the wheels came off the wagon, these so-called men of wisdom turned out to be a bunch of wise guys who did little more than pour the salt of false accusations into Job's very open, painful wounds. When the going got tough for Job, these friends decided it was time to abandon their needy friend and instead join forces against him. Dependability. That's the quality that separates ever-flowing streams from wadis. And sadly, Job learned how undependable fair-weather friends can be. So where can someone go to find help in time of spiritual need? The obvious answer would seem to be the Lord. But is he really dependable? The prophet Jeremiah had his doubts. At one critical point in his life, Jeremiah experienced a crisis of faith. 
He was so discouraged, he even questioned the dependability of God. He finally cried out in Jeremiah 15, Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you, turning to God, he says, indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? God, can I even trust you? Or are you nothing more than a wadi that will let me down? Thankfully, God came to Job in those dark days and showed how dependable he really was. Jeremiah's problems didn't vanish, but he discovered that God's grace was sufficient to meet his deepest needs. Just a few chapters later, Jeremiah recorded the answer to his own question. In chapter 17, he wrote, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. God is indeed the fountain of living water, the absolutely dependable hope for all seeking help in times of trouble. So what struggles are you facing today? Have your friends or your employer or your church or even your family let you down? Have they failed to come through when you so desperately needed them to come alongside and give you comfort or hope? Or help? Have you looked for refreshing streams but found instead dry wadis? If that's the case, then don't miss this point. Even when those around us let us down, God is still faithful. He is the hope. He is the never-failing stream. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God will keep you from ever having problems, but I am saying that he will always provide grace to help in time of need to everyone who turns in faith to him. I have a dear friend in Dallas who is known to many simply as Chaplain Bill. Bill's been through a lot, and he speaks with the wisdom and compassion of a seasoned veteran of life's battles. He has a saying that I've never forgotten. Life is tough, but God is good. Life is tough, but God is good. And both Job and Jeremiah would add, and you can depend on him all the time. Boy, that's encouraging, isn't it? We can depend on him all the time. Thanks, Charlie. Maybe you'll want to hear today's devotional again. It's available, as is the entire broadcast, at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Sometimes people tease me about the way I, I give our website address, but I have to do it that slowly and that deliberately because otherwise you get all kinds of wrong names, and that doesn't take you anywhere. Again, it's thelandandthebook.org. We so appreciate it when uh, listeners like you take the time to send us an email, as Mary has done. She says, first of all, I'd like to tell you how much I enjoy your weekly radio program. It is one of my favorite podcasts, and I look forward to it every week. I especially enjoy your amazing Israel segment. But honestly, the entire program is wonderful, inspirational, and educational. Keep up the good work. That is very, very kind. Thank you, Mary. Have you written us lately? To let you know how God has blessed you through the land and the book, your uh, email will be a real encouragement to the team here. I can promise you that. And it's easy to connect with us. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Why not check out the books tab at our website to learn about books that Charlie Dyer has written, books I've written. It's right there at thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. 
The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. I'm John Gager. Thanks for hanging out with us today. See you next time.